1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, 12 through 14, and 17. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to all of our Christian faith. I would say it's also central to all of human history, and I would go as far as saying it is central to the very longing of your soul. The scriptures are pretty clear that God has written eternity on the hearts of men and women. We all want more than what we have. We all look at death and we say to ourselves, whether we say it out loud or not, this can't be it. Death cannot have the final say. There must be more. I don't know if you've been recently to a memorial or a funeral. I've been to a few in the last weeks, a few weeks, and I will tell you, each time I'm sitting there, everything in me wants to cry out, this is not how it ends. This is not the end. There is so much more. And every human heart cries out, for there to be more. Whether you are a follower of Jesus, whether you're a Christian or not, every human heart wants to be assured, if we are honest, that death doesn't win. Amen? We want life after death. We long for death to be swallowed up in the victory of resurrection. Because we were made for more. In fact, when I counsel people and walk through grief, One of the things I encourage them to do is to cry out with all that they have, this is not natural. Death is not how it is supposed to be. Stephen T. Um writes in terms of our desire for resurrection, he says, even if one does not believe in the resurrection, one would want it to be true. If there is a concern for justice, good stewardship of the environment, and other great causes in the physical world, then believing in the resurrection provides the proper context and understanding for desiring a greater and better world. If this life is all there is, what incentive or motivation would one have to try to work for a greater or better world? In other words, he's saying the longing for justice is a longing for a world that will be made right. The the longing for restoration is a longing for a day when all that ruins our relationships will be eradicated. 
The longing for healing is a, a longing for there to be a day when death doesn't and sin and sickness doesn't win. That, that's in all of us. And it, it's a cue that we should long for and hope in the resurrection first of Jesus Christ and then second of our own bodies one day. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We've been in a series in Corinthians for a while now. We'll be starting our fourth installment of that series looking at the resurrection, not only today of Jesus Christ, but also of our own bodies one day. And when we understand not only the resurrection of Jesus rightly, but the resurrection of our own bodies that we one day will be raised, it changes absolutely everything for us. So I'm looking forward to walking through that. Tim Keller says this about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it is the hinge on which the story of the world hinges. See, the church in Corinth was struggling to believe in a bodily resurrection. They bought into the lie that when you die, your soul just goes into a disembodied state floating around in the heavenly realms because your body in itself is really a limitation or even an evil presence that you're trying to get out of. Instead of seeing as we should see in the creation narrative that when God created us, he created us man and women with bodies and he said it's very good. The body is meant to be a good thing for God's glory and the life we live in it is meant to be something that we should enjoy forever. So we'll talk about that more in the coming days. But you can, I think you can understand why the Corinthians might have under, had a hard time really embracing this idea of a bodily uh, resurrection because in their language, if you said the resurrection from the dead, that was basically saying walking dead people. Okay? In their mind, it was like the corpse would come out of the tomb and it was a, a zombie a cop apocalypse. That's, that's what they're thinking. So some of you guys have seen Walking Dead. Okay? That, that's what was in their head, right? Like that, that, that can't be possible. And, but, but Paul says, if we don't accept a bodily resurrection, then what do we do with Jesus? In fact, what do we do with the gospel? In fact, if we lose it, we lose everything. Paul says it this way, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We'll come back to that both this week and in the coming weeks. If you're a Christian, I hope that you will leave today with a great deal of confidence in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and in so having that confidence in your own salvation and the certainty that the world will not end in brokenness, but in restoration. If you're not yet a Christian, I, I'm so glad you're here. And I, I would say this, that the, the validity of the resurrection should cause you to seriously consider Jesus and everything he did and everything he taught. Timothy Keller says it this way in The Reason for God. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? I think that's a pretty true statement. That it rises and falls on whether or not he really did do what he said he would do. And if he really did do it and overcame sin, Satan, and death in his resurrection, then we ought to step back and take seriously everything Jesus is about. I, I think about how many times people have a near-death experience 
And you know, whether it's you know, they got really sick and they thought they were gonna die and then they didn't or they got in an accident and it looked like they were holding out for their last breath or whatever it was. But when, when that happens, every single thing changes. Your whole life flashes before you. You take seriously every moment you're given and you begin to live in a very different way. When people experience a kind of an afterlife experience where they, they flatline and then they tell of this kind of out-of-body experience that they often have when they, they see something other than what they've experienced and they talk about that narrative and whether it was true or not, whatever they experienced, they write about and everybody wants to hear about it, right? Everyone wants to buy the book and read, read and see the movie or whatever it may be. And, and you think, man, if, if we are willing to listen to people who have near-death experiences and even have flatline experiences that come back to tell about it, you would think we would listen to Jesus. In fact, it's really interesting. Jesus tells a story at one point about a very rich man and a very poor man, a rich man and Lazarus, and how this rich man doesn't ever care for the poor man. And one day, the, the poor man's in heaven and the, the rich man is basically in hell. And it's a, it's a story, it's a narrative, but kind of a parable. And, and he says, man, just, just let me go back and warn my family, my brothers. Let me, let me tell them what it's like here. And, and Jesus says, even if the dead were to rise and come back and tell them, they won't listen. And you gotta imagine Jesus going like, that's gonna be me. I'm gonna rise from the dead and they're gonna see me and people are gonna still go, yeah, I don't know if I believe. And maybe, maybe that's you today. You're going, yeah, I still don't believe. And I just wanna say, what will it take? The resurrection of Jesus is not only the greatest news in the world, but it's the greatest warning sign that there is one who can save you and you have to go to him. He's the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. So hopefully we take that seriously and if you're new to the faith or even a bit of a, you know, struggling a little bit to believe, let me start with this. The resurrection is a historical reality. It really did happen. It's not just a myth or a good story. In fact, to dismiss, dismiss the, the resurrection, to, to reject it, you have to face four very clear historical realities and then try to erase them. One is the actual burial of Jesus Christ. Jesus really did die on the cross. All historians agree. It's written all over the place. Not only did he die, but it was proven he was dead, that they, they pierced his side with a sword and blood and water flowed. He was taken down from the cross, not by his disciples because they gave up hope. They ran away. But Joseph of Arimathea, and if you know who that is, he was one of the ruling members of the Jewish council who convicted Jesus to have him crucified. The other guy who helped was Nicodemus, who secretly pursued Jesus as, Jesus, as it's recorded in John 3, asking, how might I enter into eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And he begins to talk to him about how the Spirit has to give you a new life to be able to see and believe these things. And those are the two guys who take Jesus' body down, wrap it up in a shroud, fill it, you know, covering it with all the spices that they would do to prepare someone for burial. And he is really dead. He wasn't asleep. It wasn't, it wasn't an illusion. Jesus died, and Jesus not only was buried, but we have a real empty tomb. It's interesting that the, the first people to find the empty tomb were what, who? Do you remember? They were the women, right? And, and, and in that particular day, if you were gonna make up a story about a resurrection, you wouldn't pick women to be your first and primary witnesses because in that particular day, a woman's witness was not counted as valid in the courts of Palestine. 
So you go like, man, we're going to make up a story and we're going to have the ladies be our first witnesses. That would be the sure way to kind of get rid of that. Now, what I love about the resurrection is not only does it give us hope after life, but it also gives us a view of what justice looks like. And God uses women to be the primary and first witnesses of the resurrection as a way of saying, we want to elevate women to the right standing in all of creation. Amen? Women, you should go like, yes, I love the resurrection. Right? That's a good word because God made men and women equal and he used women in a day when their word was not trusted to be the first means of testifying to Jesus' resurrection. Love that. There's an empty tomb, plenty of witnesses, and there's post-resurrection appearances to way more than 500 people. Listen to what Paul says. He appears to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, these are the, the male disciples. He also appeared to more than 500 brothers, and that should be brothers and sisters. It's referring to men and women there at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some, has fall, some have fallen asleep. Now, there are some who would say these post-resurrection ex, uh, appearances that Jesus uh, engaged in were just hallucinations. But can you imagine 500 people all at the same time having the same hallucination? That'd be like this whole room, all of you are on one same drug trip and you all saw a hallucination at the same time. That's some mighty powerful drug to unite your hallucination. And so what Paul is saying is you gotta understand that doesn't happen unless it happened. Jesus appeared to 500 people all at the same time and just so you know, they're alive at his writing. So in other words, he's saying, go ahead and ask them if you don't believe us. Ask them what they saw. Historically, it's proven Jesus died, Jesus was buried, there's an empty tomb, he appeared to more than 500 people. And then lastly, the response of the early disciples. The the early followers of Jesus had every reason not to believe in a resurrection. I mean, I want you to just put yourself in the story. If Jesus had not really been raised, why would you make up the story of a Messiah who came to to really overcome the rule of Rome. That was their view, right? The disciples are going, we're longing for the Messiah. He's gonna come in on a white steed. He's gonna come in. That was last Sunday, by the way. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, Palm Sunday. They're going, here he is. Messiah's coming to town. Messiah's gonna take over. He's gonna destroy all of Rome. We're gonna be ruling with him. He will be the king. We'll be at his side. We will rule. Jewish people will have the land back. That's their story. And what do they get instead? Jesus, by the religious leaders, is called a heretic and a blasphemer. And then Rome crucifies him. So here the disciples are going, that's not the Messiah. That's at least not what we thought the Messiah would be like. Of course, we know that the victory wasn't really against Rome, but it was against the greatest enemy, which is sin, which led to death. And then Jesus put death to death in the grave so that he could rise again victoriously over every enemy we'll ever face, right? Right? So, so their, their view of Jesus was a little jacked up. In fact, they all take off and they're thinking, it's over. But it had just begun. And, and, they, and they testified to the resurrection. You go, well, if they were making it up, why would they testify to a heretic, a blasphemer, and a guy who gets destroyed by Rome? And not, on, not, not only that, why would you be willing to die for a lie? There, there's no benefit for proclaiming the resurrection if you lose your head for it. And that's what happened. They went to their deaths proclaiming, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. 
Jesus is risen and victorious. He's alive. So, there's so much evidence. I don't have enough time to keep going. Anthony Flew, one of the most respected atheist, atheistic philosophers within the last 50 or 60 years, said this about the resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity from the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. He went on, by the way, to become a deist. He didn't become fully a Christian, but he could not deny the resurrection. He knew it happened. He didn't fully submit himself to Jesus. And I think even Jesus' parable, even if one comes back from the dead, they still won't believe, applies to him. I pray it doesn't apply to you today. I pray that, pray that you, you leave here today going, man, I, I, it's irrefutable. Jesus raised. It changed everything. In fact, I, I would say Jesus died, rose again, changes not just your everyday life, but it changed your weekend. Right? Jewish people gave a Sabbath, so you now have a Saturday off, but you have Sunday off because of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Like the first day of the week, the work week was Sunday and Jesus rose on the first day of the week to give you and I a a new beginning of a new creation and you ought to all say, thank God it's Friday. Or maybe better yet, thank Jesus Christ it's Friday. Maybe it's T-J-C-I-F. I I don't know. Like you've been given a gift. You you know, we don't even realize it because you've been, since 1908, you didn't know we only have a five-day work week in this country, but it's because of the Sabbath and the resurrection. Pretty cool. So everyone just go T-J-C-I-F right now. That's hard to say, I know. Just thank him. There you go. It happened. It's a very historical reality, reality proven by so many sources. But it's also transformational reality. It's not just historical. It's transformative. See, the good news as Paul lays it out is good news that saves, good news that transforms, good news that changes. And if you're not familiar with that phrase, good news, which we often then shorten to gospel, that's the word we use for that. The word gospel, which means good news, came from this concept of the, the evangelist. There would, there would be a person who would be in the battle on the front lines with the people. And as soon as they won the, the battle and the king of the opposing nation was taken down, they would take the flag of that nation and they would take that flag into their city. So the evangelist would run with the victory flag back home and say, I've got good news. We won the battle. Our king is victorious over all. And so the idea of good news came to the people in that day as a way of saying the victory has been won. We are now the victors. And that's what's going on in the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, we have a reason to wave the flag. The enemy has been defeated. Sin, Satan, and death don't get the final word. Jesus does. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is victorious over all. Amen? Amen. And it's transformative. And this this doesn't just apply at a grand level, it applies at a very personal level. First of all, the transformational reality Paul goes after. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. But the opposite side is true. Because he has been raised, our preaching is not in vain. Your faith is not futile. You are not in your sins anymore. You have experienced the victory of Christ breaking into this world and breaking into your heart. And the good news is transformative. How? Why? Let me go through it with you. 
Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, the victory chant that we preach, which you've received and which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached, unless you believed in vain. Of course, he's saying, you didn't. (laughs) You didn't believe in vain. He's gonna go through that the next few weeks and talk about how powerful it is. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And when he says that, he's referring to the Old Testament, in particular, the prophetic, and more particular, Isaiah, speaking of a suffering servant who would come to die for the people's sins, that's Jesus. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's several components that I don't want you to miss in the good news. In fact, those of you who are already in the faith, have already put your life in Jesus' hands, you trust him for your salvation, I want these truths to just bring great confidence to you today. And those of you who are new to the faith and maybe have not yet responded, I pray that you might respond when you hear um, how amazing the good news is. First of all, Jesus' life. Paul doesn't say it here, but it's implied that if he died, he had to live. And you might ask, why did God have to take on flesh? Why did the Son of Man, Son of God, have to become the Son of Man and take on flesh and dwell amongst us? Because we needed a human to do what we can't do. You and I were created in the image of God to display the truth of what God is like. You were made in his image to bear his likeness in your thoughts, in your motives, in your words, and in all your actions. That's the reason God made you. That's the telos for why you exist. The purpose for your existence is to live in such a way that you might be a unique display of the very nature of what God is like. And the Bible says that all of us have fallen short. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what the Bible calls sin. It's any way in which we failed to live out our telos, our purpose for the way in which God made us. And so Jesus, the Son of God, takes on flesh and dwells among us and he lives the perfect human life in submission to God in absolutely every way. The Apostle Paul later says, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the deity in bodily form. Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he came to be our life. He came to live the righteous requirements of the law to fulfill every aspect of being human for you and I. I wanna be really clear, if you're not yet a Christian, we don't believe it's our good works that makes us acceptable before God. We believe it's Jesus' life and his good works that makes us acceptable to God. Because if it's up to me, I'm in trouble because I've gotta measure up to Jesus. And I can't do that. Only Jesus can live that life. And so the weight is off me and the weight is on him. That's why the Bible's really clear. It's by grace you've been saved, not by works, but by grace through faith in Jesus and what he's done. Not only did he live to be our righteousness, but he died to be our substitute. Jesus, as Paul says, died. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Elsewhere, Paul says he's the propitiation of our sins, which means he is the payment that fully satisfies God's wrath against us for our rebellion. That he satisfied it fully. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. When Paul says the wages of sin is death, he's referring both to what we must pay for our sin and rebellion against God, which is not only death of this physical body, but eternal death, which is separation from God, the giver of life forever, 
but also not just what I must pay for my sins, but the way my sins have caused others to pay. The way that my rebellion has hurt my relationships, the way that my rebellion has hurt the world that I live in, the way that my rebellion and living for Jeff's fame and Jeff's selfish desires and Jeff's glory has actually not only robbed God of his glory and rebellion to him, but it also has hurt people in my life. And so Jesus didn't just come to forgive me of my sins, but to heal me and transform me and make me new. And then to heal all the broken relationships in our world as a result. See, he went to the cross not only to be the perfect human in our place, but to be the perfect substitute in payment that would satisfy the wrath of God and transform everything ultimately. So he was buried. He lived, he died, he was buried. And that's important because we know that his burial was his way of taking all of the sin, all of the death, all of the brokenness and bringing it to the grave. He put sin to death, he put death to death, he put evil to death for you and me. Romans 8 says, if anyone's in Christ, he has no condemnation for them. Goes on to say, the reason why is because Jesus condemns sin in his flesh. That's such good news. He basically took the condemnation that was against you and he condemned it. And then he put it in the grave. I own a couple homes in Tacoma, I should say the bank does. So we eventually want to sell them and buy a house up here, but we're waiting for that market to get a little bit. We can't afford a house on the east side. It's crazy, right? So expensive. Uh, But one of the houses we have paid off, and you know what I get to do with that old loan? I get to tear it up. I don't know anything on it anymore. And you know what Jesus did to the payment that you and I should pay God? He took it to the grave and he buried it. And it will never get to speak against you again. That's really good news. In his burial, he took away the condemnation. In his burial, he took away the power. In his burial, he left it in the grave and then he rose again on the third day. He went to death on Friday, grave Friday night, Saturday, Sunday morning, he was raised. And the resurrection of Jesus tells us several things, but you need to hear this. One of the things it tells us is that he came out of the grave with the receipt paid in full for your debt. Amen. Paid in full. Man, when you have those days when you're living with the shame for sin, guilt for what you've done, fear that God might be against you, just remember him rising from the dead with the receipt paid in full. No need to be afraid. Because fear has to do with punishment. But perfect love has cast out that fear. No need to be ashamed and high because Jesus took on your shame so you could take on his righteousness. No need to feel the guilt of your sin because it was already atoned for at the cross. And not only did he rise with the receipt, but he rose with the crown. He rose with the victory, king of kings, lord of lords. There is nobody and nothing that is more powerful than Jesus Christ. And if your life is in him, not only do you get his righteousness and his forgiveness, but you get his power. Amen? 
And then Jesus went to the right hand of God the Father where he's constantly making intercession for you and I. This, by the way, is why we need a bodily resurrection because we need a person who is perfect and paid for our sins with a body before God the Father so that we in our bodies might have one who has a perfect body of righteousness representing us before God because it's the sin you do in your body that God has to deal with, not just some kind of disembodied reality. So that's an amazing idea that Jesus, the son of God, would humble himself and take on human flesh forever for you and me so that we would forever have somebody standing between God and man making intercession and saying to the father, love them because I love them, forgive them because I gave my life for them, look at them and be proud of them because my righteousness is their righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. I mean, why wouldn't anybody receive that? other than frank arrogance that says, I want to make it on my own. And I just want to warn you, you can't. You will never measure up to the demands that God has because the demands are the righteousness of Christ himself. And he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And then lastly, not only is it a historical reality and a transformative reality, it changes absolutely everything for us, but it is a personal reality. You, you have to decide what you will do with Jesus. No one else can do it for you. The Apostle Paul says this, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul answers the question, is our preaching in vain? He goes, no way. Look at what he did to me. I was persecuting the church, Paul says. He was a religious man who was dead set against Jesus and gave approval to Christians being killed for their faith in Jesus. And he says, I was one who was untimely born or abnormally born. And that literal phrase means one who was miscarried in birth. Okay, that's what it literally means. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, hey, like all the other disciples, Jesus said, follow me. And they went, yeah. And they followed him. And when Paul go, he went, no way, I'm gonna kill you. And so what did God have to do? God had to blind him, drag him, spiritually beat him up to wake him up to get him to Jesus, right? If you know the story of Paul, it was not a gentle prodding. It was, you will come to faith, Apostle Paul. You will be my person that I will use. And so you can imagine Paul being dragged into the faith is going, I'm just telling you what the power of the gospel can do. It can take a guy like me who is religious, prideful, arrogant, and opposed to Jesus, and it can change me. And so God's word is not coming in vain. It comes in power, and it changes lives. And that's really good news for some of you, because some of you are going, no, I'm not there, and I'm just going to go, you can't withstand the grace of God. He will win. You go, yeah, but you don't know how far I've run, Jeff. The Lord's arm is not too short to save. He can get you no matter how far you run. And you go, but you don't know what I've done. And I'm just going to tell you, there is no sin too great for him to overcome and forgive. If he can forgive the apostle Paul, who's a murderer, he can forgive you in your own sin. And he wants you to receive that today. He wants to set you free. He wants to change your life. He wants to open your eyes. He wants to make you new. That's what he wants for you. But personally, you must respond to him. You have to make a decision. 
I want to urge you, acknowledge that you have sinned. Admit it. Say, yes, I've, I've not lived the life I was created to live. I have not fully displayed what you're like, God, in every way I was supposed to. I've rebelled against you. I've made it about me. I've been selfish. I've been, I've been prone to, to walk my own way and walk away from you. Acknowledge it. And then second, believe that Jesus came to be for you the perfect righteousness you aren't. Just say, I need his righteousness because mine won't measure up. And then acknowledge that he went to the cross for your sins and say, I need a savior to forgive me of my sins. I believe he became my sin on the cross and I want to accept what he did for me. So I want to acknowledge it. I want to confess it with my lips. I want to, I want to believe that Jesus is the one. And so I just want to ask you to bow your heads with me if you would because I want to lead you if you're ready to respond in a prayer. And I'm just gonna tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna encourage, if you're ready, you go, man, I have, I have been withholding, I have been standing back, I've not responded, but today has got to be the day of salvation for me. Then I just want you to start with this prayer. God, I acknowledge that I've sinned. I know that I've fallen short of your glory. And I realize that the wages of sin is death. I've experienced it, the brokenness in this world. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life for me, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I receive his forgiveness. I believe that Jesus was buried so that all the condemnation for my sin is no longer coming against me because he buried it in the grave. And I believe he rose again on the third day, victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And so I ask you, Jesus, come into my life. Rule over me. Be my leader, be my Lord. Forgive me, change me, and guide me with your spirit. And we ask that your spirit would fill us now to live a new life, we pray in Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed, keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I wanna ask you to raise your hand. Father, I pray for these men and women who have responded today. I ask that you would grant them joy in their salvation, remind them that they're forgiven, they're loved, they're accepted, that there's a new beginning. Lord, for many of us who prayed that again just today, just because we keep praying it, because we know it's true, assure our hearts again that the resurrection is your stamp of victory over sin and death for us. We thank you for what you've done, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.